2022, a crack writing duo was sent to prison for podcasting crimes that they didn't commit. These men promptly escaped from a maximum security prison to the Austin Underground. Today, still wanted by the government, they survive as game masters of fortune. If you have a problem, if no one else can help, and if you can find their website, maybe you can hire Retro Arcana. We join our hosts now as they enter the elevator at the Top Secret Podcast Bunker. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Bobby. What uh, what book do you got there? Oh, this? This is uh, Playing at the World by John Peterson. For somebody who's a historian of gaming, as I occasionally claim to be, this is a pretty good book to give yourself a foundation in the origins of our hobby. Oh, so it's kind of a kind of a deep dive into the history of how everything came to be. Exactly. Peterson goes way back, way back to the point that I quoted him several times in that thesis I talked about. Um, and he establishes where wargaming came from because role-playing was an outgrowth of wargaming. And he basically spends a good portion of the book talking about how it morphed from one into the other and how Dave Arneson and Gygax ended up with the whole peanut butter and chocolate accident that invented Dungeons and Dragons. And there's a lot of other interesting characters along the way. Oh, that's very cool. So, yeah, playing at the world, it, it shows you where our hobby came from and how it came to pass. It's a very thorough and very interesting book. And now there's two more books he's written to add to the end of it. But this one is the one where you want to start. Well, very neat. Where, where could one get that book? Like, if I wanted to go buy it right now... Oh, you can score this one on Amazon. It's great. Um, I really, you know, I enjoy my copy. I've also got it electronically through Kindle. So, um, yeah, go out and score it one way or the other. What do you got there? Oh, I've got Tabletop, the analog game design book. It's a kind of a collection of essays by prominent game designers kind of diverse backgrounds because they've done card games and board games and tabletop games video games uh, in these essays they talk about game design and game culture and how games kind of intersect with learning and theater and even kind of real life you, you would have really kind of been able to use this in your thesis project well you tell me about it now I found out about it uh, a couple weeks ago and I've been slowly working through these essays and let me tell you, I mean, it, it's kind of neat because whereas you're kind of like the history person, I like to see uh, the, the theory behind games and how they kind of come up with mechanics and how they get these mechanics to work overall. And really uh, it's it kind of the, the, that thought process that I find really interesting. Um, some of the authors have even gone into kind of their own personal design processes and philosophies with this too. And so if you've got an interest in, in ludology, the study of game mechanics, or games and game mechanics, then this is a, this is a really good read. Awesome, where would I pick one up? I got this one from Amazon. Uh, and we were, we, we spent, quite a bit of time talking about uh, D6 Star Wars and the, and the 
first episode. This is edited by Greg Kostikian, very prominent, uh, very prominent with uh, his design with D6. Yes. Well, here we are. Let's get started. Now in the secret podcast bunker, our heroes begin the Retro Arcana podcast. Welcome to the Retro Arcana Podcast. I'm Bobby. And I'm Jeff. We are coming to you live recorded from the podcast bunker deep underneath Austin. Uh, today, we're going to talk about 1D&D. 1D&D is the kind of code name for the next edition of the Dungeons and Dragons game. Not to be confused with D&D Next, which was the last edition of the D&D game. Yeah, exactly. These code names, I swear. But they've been releasing playtest materials for people to go through, play, and then respond back to their surveys. And so they can find out what people are having fun with. And uh, the answer to that is Shadowrun. <laughs> But they've, they've, they've released uh, three documents so far, and the, the last document that came out actually fixed one or two things that people have already got. They've already gotten feedback up about with the first one, in addition to some new material. And we just wanted to, you know, spend a little time talking about it and going through and giving our thoughts, particularly the, the differences between, uh, you know, this one D&D and fifth edition. And what a response they got. According to an interview that just went up on YouTube yesterday, they had 39,000 plus respondents answer the first survey about what people thought about the one D&D character origins document. I was one of those respondents. And let me tell you, that was not a short questionnaire. So just the thought of 39,000 people taking that amount of time to go through and give their opinion, that's... That shows a pretty impressive player base. About how many about how many questions do they have on that? Oh good lord. Um I remember it took me about 40 minutes. So it was I can't remember the number of questions, but there were a lot of questions and there were a lot of write-in blocks at the end of sections of questions. And again, according to the interview, they actually stopped and read all of those uh, write-ins and made notes of the commonly recurring opinions. Oh, well, that's very cool. I mean, honestly, that's the, the doing play tests like this and getting feedback are very important to the game design process. And the fact that they're listening is quite evident. Mm -hmm. Like there have been two play test documents that dropped since character origins. They just closed out the poll for expert classes. And just today, they dropped the cleric class and it includes some material that has been reworked from the earlier documents in response to people's people's opinions. Yeah, and that and those two are uh they 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 had the introduction of the Ardling in the first playtest document, and then the the Dragonborn in the first playtest document, and those reappear here in slightly different forms. Uh, based on that feedback. And then they've gone ahead, and in addition to the cleric, they've also added in 
uh, the Goliath as a, as a species. And so you can kind of get an idea of what that kind of, uh, that, that species looks like. And that in itself is an interesting point. We are now using the word species. Yep. Dungeons and Dragons is walking away from the word race and it's probably high time it did. Yeah. A lot of other games, uh, don't use that term. Um, you know, it's, it's definitely a dated, antiquated uh type thing i don't see uh i don't see any problem with moving away it's just kind of a nomenclature change right and and the thing is i've been playing DD for a very long time from from much much older editions than this and so yes the word race is kind of stuck in my head as as part of DD tradition but you know time goes on and we learn things. We we learn space is not full of luminiferous ether. We learn that, well, it should be, and that's why I play Space 1889. I'm just saying, luminiferous ether is so much fun to say. But we come, we come across a new understanding of our world, and we adapt to it. And we understand that, that there are things and presentations of species and lineage and kin and race that might make people a little uncomfortable being around the game table. That's where you're supposed to be comfortable. And if somebody wants me to use the word species instead of race, I'm cool with it. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, let's get started with, uh, taking a look at that very first document. Yeah. Well, one of the things in this right here is, is illustrated properly in the document and we can kind of go into it, but, talking about the new species the first big change that jumped out to me is in the past the different species the humans the elves the dragonborn uh, they're all a collection of uh attribute things so you have your creature type you have the 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 size of the uh, of the species the speed the lifespan one of the other things that used to be part in, uh, part of it was uh, ability score bonuses. So elves, all elves were dexterous. They had a plus two bonus to dex. And then depending on the subspecies, at least with fifth edition, uh, I'd have to go back and, and take a look at it at previous editions to be able to verify for them. But let's say you were a high elf. Well, you could get an additional bonus to intelligence. Mm -hmm. You were, if you were a, a drow, uh, you get a bonus to charisma. A uh, wood elf would get a bonus to either, I think it was either strength or constitution. And so the first big change that I've noticed is they've removed those ability score bonuses for the different species. And they've tied them into the backgrounds for the characters. And I, I actually really like this because to me, a lumberjack is going to be a big, beefy, brawny, you know, uh, person. A blacksmith is going to be the same, whereas like a, a, some kind of clerical type may not. You still get the ability to go through and whenever you get your 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 either rolling up or doing point based buying of your ability score bonuses, you can create your strong 
uh, acolyte, but your species is no longer going to have an inborn uh, ability score bonus. And that's where this change gets controversial with a certain section of the fan base is there are certain groups of folks that take a look at that and go, well, that's totally unrealistic. And why wouldn't a dwarf be naturally hardier? Because that's just how dwarves are. Why wouldn't an elf be faster? Because that's just how elves are. The design choice here that Wizards of the Coast is trying to go with is that since we have opened up way back in 3rd edition that any species can be any character class, they want to make it possible to build a character that is advantageous. They don't want there to be suboptimal choices for class. The, for instance, um, well, and, and this is something that was said in the interview, Kevin Crawford was stressing with feats, but also with every other option available in D&D. They want the options to be truly optional. They want them to be something that you choose because this is how you want your character to be, not because your character will be ineffective if you don't. They don't want things to, I am going to create a elven wizard because elves get an intelligence bonus. I'm going to create, you know, they, they don't want that to be a thing. And so what they have created is a paradigm in which certain traits come with the species, but the ability bonus comes from the background so that you can choose the background that leads into your class. Yeah, and kind of case in point right here, I'm looking at the dwarf right now. These are the dwarf traits. So in addition to creature type, size, speed, lifespan, the dwarf has these these additional traits. They have dark vision out to 60 feet. Dwarven resilience, and that gives them resistance, which is uh, introduced with 5e. Basically, they take half damage from poison. Um, Dwarven toughness, they get an additional hit point, and uh, that happens again at every level whenever you gain hit points. Um, They get their their forge-wise. They get uh, tool proficiency bonuses. So you still have a whole lot of what makes a dwarf a dwarf. They're just decoupling these ability score bonuses from and putting it into the background, which, like I said, to me, makes a certain amount of sense. And uh, something that I find interesting, you know, again, growing up with D&D, you had to roll your dice yeah. to to get your stats that was the default back in the day it's still optional but that pretty was sick straight down exactly <laughs> and you could not play a dwarf unless you happen to roll the minimum stats for a dwarf now not everyone rolled the 3d6 in order like even back in the day we were rolling 46 drop the lowest and put them where you want them yeah. so it wasn't as much of a limitation as it sounds but if you did not have the stats to be a dwarf, you had to choose something else. If you didn't have the stats to be an elf, and that even extended to character class, it was very difficult to become a paladin or a ranger because you had to have so many high stats. I think I had one ranger. <laughs> that was it. I had I had one ranger. And uh, yeah, I just I was rolling hot that day. So in this new implementation of D&D, 
and and this has been true um been true since third edition since third edition anyone can be anything and the game designers are leaning more towards allowing you that freedom so that rather than roll the dice and play the character you just rolled you're sitting down with a concept already in mind and they're trying to remove as many obstacles as they can from you getting to that concept so even though dwarves used to be renowned for being crusty and dour and having a low charisma now you can create that dwarven bard um yeah. you know you heard him singing the misty mountain song there have got to be dwarven bards so you can create those characters that break the mold and that's where they're going with decoupling the ability scores because they realize that in all these fantasy stories the characters that we enjoy are ones that in some way break the mold bilbo broke the mold of the hobbit because he went out on an adventure um Drizzt breaks the mold of the drow because he is a hero so you end up with these characters that are somehow different from the rest of their species or the rest of their culture. And so the way they've done this allows you to do that. Yeah. And I kind of enjoy it. It reminds me very much of the way you used to be able to create characters in uh, Middle Earth Roleplay and subsequently in Against the Dark Master, which is the new implementation of Middle Earth Roleplay. You choose... Uh, a species or a kin and then you choose a culture on top of them yeah. and that gives you this blend that D&D 1 is, is giving us of things that are inborn versus things that are cultural yeah. from your background Yeah. and honestly like I said th- I, this is the kind of thing that I, I really enjoy but for you know the kind of the people who don't enjoy it there's nobody who's going to come and tell you that you can't do it the way you like to. That's what homebrew is. Oh, exactly. Yeah, you 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 want a homebrew, homebrew your 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 you know to your heart's content. Um but don't don't come in and try to ruin uh you know new directions just because that's the way it was done in the past. And you know, I can see that argument from both directions. But your statement still applies. Play it the way you want to play it at your table. Yeah. The new Dragonlance book that comes out, some of the artwork seems to imply that you can play a female knight of Salamnia. Those who have read the original Dragonlance novels are immediately going to go, wait a minute, that's not how the knights of Salamnia work. And if you want to run your game canon to the novels, go ahead and do that. Because as someone who has run Pendragon, I've gone to all sorts of lengths to include, um, to include, uh, you know, uh, women knights or um, women that disguise themselves as men in order to move in the circles of knights. You can do that. But then again, you can take a step back and go, you know, it's 2020. Yeah. Um, it's it's 2022 yes it is it is 2022 and you i lost two years basically just say you know this is the way Dragonlance was written in 1985 if you want to play it as if it's a historic period by all means cleave to the original novels if you want to open up 
your perceptions a little bit and allow anybody to play anything, you can certainly make room for anyone to play a Knight of Salamnia. And I just don't see a problem with that. There, there Ultimately, there is no problem other than people just trying to hold on to whatever they can. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I've heard a lot of people making noise about it online. And again, if you're trying to be historical about it, feel free to do that at your table. Yeah. But with your own players, and if y'all all agree, then just do it that way. Right. The name of the game in modern D&D is to appeal to the wider audience. That's, you know, Wizards of the Coast is trying to open it up and make it accessible. And, um, you know, I, I look at the particular group I roll with, and I think it's a wonderful idea. Yeah. No. Try to cast a wide net. That There's nothing wrong with that. And you, you cast a wide net by being inclusive to that kind of stuff. Let's dig back through. Let's see here. So new species uh, here called the Ardling. I was given the Ardling kind of a read through. Now there's two different versions of the Ardling out right now. You have the original from the first, uh, the first playtest document Ardling which were a kind of a celestial animal based uh, species. Um, I don't see anything in here that necessarily says they are, uh, they're bipedal. Um, Cause there's no pictures involved with any of this. So we don't know what the designers necessarily have in mind here, but reading through the description of the, of the celestial beings with animal traits. It reminds me of, and I'm not sure if this existed in previous editions, but I'm, uh, the, the, uh, the cleric, uh, books from third edition dealing with the exalted kind of planes. They had all of these different species of, uh, celestial beings that had animal traits. And this is what it kind of reminds me of is you've got these, and it, it actually kind of reminds me of another kind of D and D trope, the Asimar, the just kind of generic celestial, uh, uh, or the, the half mortal, half celestial kind of, uh, sub subspecies. And so this seems like it kind of opens it up or actually just really kind of plays to the fact that there were these other celestial beings that had animal traits. But uh, then you go and you take a look at the second version of it and that that didn't get so much. Uh, that didn't apparently the original interpretation didn't rate very highly in those nearly 40,000 uh, reviews that came back on the first playtest document. And so in the second version of it, which is out in the third playtest document, they're leaning more into just this being like an animal and they're, they're dropping a lot of the celestial ideas, right? right sort of a beast person. person. Well, they're saying it, they, they still have in their celestial animals roam the beast lands, but they're tying it much more into the bestial nature, which honestly to me kind of reminds me of the shifters from Eberron. 
And it reminds me of the Henga Yokai from uh, the old AD&D Oriental Adventures book. Yeah. Just, uh, yeah. And okay, so actually I, I'm looking at the, uh, an Ardling has a head resembling that of an animal. And then they'll have fur and feather scales. So it, it is designed to be a, a bipedal uh, kind of, uh, have a, a bipedal kind of look. And I'm like I said, I'm looking at the 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 second version of it right here. Right, and the the avian variants of the second version have vestigial wings, which I think is pretty neat. Yeah, and basically all that really allows them it uh, gives them kind of a glide speed. But they've got bear, cat, lizard, squirrel, bat, eagle, owl, raven, deer, dog, horse, triceratops. There you go, triceratops, saber tooth tiger. Sorry. And then crocodile, dolphin, frog, shark. And they've got the, and obviously, you know, you got the bear, cat, lizard, squirrel. Those are in what are called the, the climber kind of uh, ancestry. Then you have the flyer ancestry with the, the vestigial wings, the racer ancestry, which are faster than normal. And then the swimmer ancestry, which gives them the ability to hold up their, or hold their breath and gives them a swim speed. Um, now, I do find this interesting because originally when the Ardling dropped with the first playtest document, there were people asking the question, well, is the Ardling going to replace the Azimar? And the, the answer from the designers has been no. But now that they're moving away from the celestial origin and leaning, excuse me, leaning more heavily into the bestial origin, now you've got to ask the question, wait a minute, what what is the difference between a cat-like Ardling and a Tabaxi? What is the difference between a bird-like Ardling and an Aarakocra? Is this going to eventually edge those races out? And I think they've said, no, they're not. But, um, you know. Yeah, well, like I said, they're still playing into the the, the beast lands. Uh, and and it, they're, they're still planar beings. Um. So, so you still have that kind of divine celestial uh, background there. Mm -hmm. So it's going to be similar yet different. Yeah, I find that I find it kind of interesting watching as Dungeons and Dragons goes along, how the cosmology is starting to coalesce into something uh, monolithic. Like it used to be, every different campaign setting had its own underpinnings yeah. of of uh metaphysics and cosmology and now in these latest products from wizards of the coast we find out tiamat is takesis bahamut is paladine dragons uh especially the the great celestial dragons exist in all campaign worlds but possibly in different uh avatars in different yeah. forms um, Very multiversal. Right. The reintroduction of Spelljammer now allows transport, more common transport between the various campaign settings. And so it's explicit now that all D&D happens in one multiverse yeah. that characters can portal between. And I think they kind of started hinting at that in 5th edition. I seem to remember it uh, being mm. in... Or at least the descriptions of it. Right. It's in, in uh, Fizban's Treasury of Dragons. They really they really make that clear. Yeah. But uh, it is interesting to me because 
transport between campaign settings is not a new concept like when Ravenloft became a campaign setting of course there was the the weekend in hell game where your character gets (laughs) transported to Ravenloft and tries tries desperately to escape yeah Um, there was also in the original Dragonlance book talk about well what happens when your character comes to Kryn from another realm and there were some really quirky rules like any wizard that doesn't join the orders of high sorcery is branded a renegade and hunted down. Or when your character reaches 18th level, the gods of Kryn say, Hey, how would you like to go live somewhere else and, and portal you out because you're too powerful for Kryn. Kind of an early tour eternity. Oh, I can't wait to talk about that game, but we're talking about one D and D. No, I just, I just find it interesting that things are pulling together and it feels to me like it really started to take shape during the edition no one else wants to talk about during fourth edition when they started talking about the Feywild and the Shadowfell and, you know, they started trying to pull together the concepts of these different planes in a way that was perhaps more specifically D&D than the original Manual of the Planes from yeah. first edition. Trying to unify the cosmology. Right. And, uh, yeah, they pissed off a whole bunch of people because people like to get pissed off about things. Exactly. Um, but again, if you like the old material, keep playing it. No one's no one's going to take it away from you. Yeah. I uh, I ran a, a Karamekos 5e campaign where it still had the old Karamekos cosmology. That was brilliant. Yeah, I just used the old stuff from the known world. Wizards of the Coast, if for some reason you're listening, Mistara needs to be a thing. Please. Pretty please. Um, And in the meantime, go out there and look at the Mistara Player's Handbook that Mr. Welch put together. It is an awesome, awesome PDF document. All right. Let's see what else is in this playtest document. Um, plenty of stuff. We were, we were talking about the way they handle the species. Um, so what is still standing from the first document that they did not change? So, you know, the Ardling and the Dragonborn have already gotten a rework. They added the Goliath, but the rework of some of the players' handbook races, I found one thing. Species. Species, my bad. See, I'm still a Grognard yeah, I, I'm, I'm not trying to dead name the species, sorry. So um, one of the things about the dwarf that jumped out at me that I didn't like is, uh-huh. is that stone cunning is now an ability that works a number of times equal to your proficiency per day. And rather than just being a general sense as it was from many of the older editions of I know stonework. I know if I'm going uphill. I know if I'm going downhill. I know if this is new stonework. I have an easier time finding um, secret doors and things in stonework. Um, I kind of enjoyed the older way that they portrayed dwarves as having this this sense. You know, they live in these vast underground uh, halls, you know, like... like, uh, Moria or Thor Barden and they just have this sense about things all of a sudden that sense is limited to twice between long rests well not only that but it's uh it's actually I'm looking at it right now it's more akin to tremor sense right it actually uses tremor it says please this is a tremor sensibility yeah um which is with a range of 60 feet for 10 minutes 
And I don't think Tremor Sense gives you all of those abilities. It just gives you the ability to detect things moving. At least that's the way old Tremor Sense used to. I'm I'm digging through the document right now. And and what is what is good and bad about this is on one hand they are leaning heavily into the number of times equal to your proficiency bonus mechanic for many things throughout these playtest documents. That's going to be a common refrain we see in one D and D unless the thirty nine thousand people that answer the next um poll stand up and go what is this well that honestly it's kind of a they 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 did that in fifth edition and uh, a lot of abilities instead of like remember in fourth edition the the not named edition you had you had your dailies you had your encounter powers powers, and now they've just changed it around to where it's tied to your proficiency bonus but uh to, to get back i've got tremor sense up right here so a creature with tremor sense can pinpoint the location of a creature and moving objects within a specific range, provided that the creature with tremor sense and anything it's detecting are both in contact with the same surface. So it's just like, uh, so basically your dwarf can close their eyes or be in a, a dark tunnel that, or, you know, somehow is uh, blocking their dark vision or something. Cause they, they do still have dark vision. And if something is moving on the same surface, or like ground wall ceiling of the same name, uh, then they can detect it. So you really lose the the kind of classic stone cutting. You you actually do with this. Um, and that's that's kind of what I you know if it's an innate ability, then I suppose it should be an innate ability. Yeah. But uh, you know, like like I almost feel like the dwarven sense. Um, in the old-fashioned D&D way should be kind of like dark vision. Either you have it or you don't. But I, I guess I understand they're trying to standardize things. And so I sort of see it. Um, it's not how I would have done it, but I don't work for Wizards of the Coast. Me either. But yeah, I would have I would have probably... So it, this right here might have to do with their uh, the original definition or the original use of stone cunning was left to be very nebulous. Mm-hmm. And so it seems like with their new design philosophy, which they started in previous, you know, they started in fifth edition, they started in fourth edition even, is to really try to codify a lot of this stuff. And they are just further doing that. And each version of it, and th- this is the problem with codifying things sometimes, is it removes flavor. Right. But if they want uh, this we can go into this whenever we start talking about actually doing game design is you really want your abilities or anything that's going to have a a mechanical effect to be supported in the lore. And so the new lore is going to have to support this. So the new books that come out are going to have to support this because if it doesn't, you've just created kind of a big disconnect between your game and the game world. Well, and those those of us of a certain age remember the time of troubles. When first edition went to second edition and they had to change the way a lot of Forgotten Realms lore worked to adapt to the second edition rules. Yeah. Certain character classes and species were no longer available. Other things were available that weren't before. And so the realms adapted, um, the lore adapted to to match the new rules. 
that happened again in third edition again in fourth edition the spell plague and so um you know the lore will have to change to support the rules yeah although i would the game designer in me wants to say no no the rules should support the existing lore but you know we just had that discussion sometimes the sometimes the lore changes to support the things going on outside the game yeah so that that's that's certainly something to talk about and i know uh there's there's a, a completely different outlook in the the original rules the osr community where we often talk about rulings not rules we don't want books full of rules the gm can sort of make it up as they go which is great um until you're trying to do what wizards is doing here and codifying things so that DD runs the same way uh for multiple people i hate to use this analogy but it's kind of it's kind of apt um with organized play and with with and that goes all the way back to rpga and dungeons and dragons tournaments at gen con but when you have an organized play ecosystem you want the play to be as identical as possible between tables between gms between cities um so what they're going for is enough rules to support that ecosystem so that as long as everybody's following the rpga or DD encounters yeah. or what have you handbook you can take your character from my table in austin to your table in uh, san francisco and it is still going to hold up it's still going to be the same rule in the old days when you had the three little saddle stapled books from the wood grain box in 74 yeah <laughs> there were wildly different um styles between gms and a lot of that was because the rules were so sparse unless you learned from someone who already played you were left to interpret yeah and game masters really had to just make things up off the top of their heads yeah um on the fly ruling yeah there's there's a great interview that just came out on on uh, another podcast actually it's it's over a year old now it's uh, another podcast called saber die where they they interviewed the player who came up with the idea of the thief class yeah. and that was a response to a player playing a fighting character saying wait why am i bashing this door down i've got a high dexterity why don't i just pick the lock yeah and from that conversation came the classes we're going to be talking about in a minute 30 years later yeah but um it's, it's just it's two different design concepts one make it up as you go have as few rules as possible and then there's what we're looking at where wizards is trying to codify everything so that it's like walking into a mcdonald's as long as it's a mcdonald's in north america you pretty much know exactly what, what that you're yeah. what you're getting um i don't think that does a service to one dnd i'm really liking what i'm seeing so yeah. far but they they are really trying to make sure that the experience is consistent yeah i mean that's that right there is going to be kind of one of those things that it, it's it's more of a modern game design philosophy it's you want to think about a lot of these things and if you uh 
don't explicitly state a rule. You're uh, at least in modern designs, you provide the framework to come up with it. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to talk about a lot of that at another time, but uh, particularly my love of like the fate system, how they've got, you know, a, a lot of things are up to interpretation with that but the framework is in place for how to deal with it all right and you know something else that we'll revisit when we get into a deep game design discussion is the sort of counterintuitive statement that the more options you give a player the more options you take away yeah um you start getting a analysis paralysis exactly and and there there becomes the argument of now that there is a thief class that can explicitly pick locks does that mean that everyone else by extension cannot pick locks yeah and and if you don't explicitly give an ability or if you don't explicitly have a skill that does that then absolutely it kind of uh lends itself to that interpretation so you know that's that's uh you know, something we can get more into when we're having an episode on game design and game mechanics. Yeah. And that'll, that'll really come down to kind of the class based, uh, you know, ability based versus skill based systems. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, let's go back into this document. All right. So we've got the Goliath class or not, I'm sorry, the Goliath species species see now now you're getting into my territory race as class film at 11 that's right that's that old edition way of doing things yeah absolutely but the goliaths uh i want to say they were introduced in late second edition or third edition but they are uh i don't remember i don't distinctively remember them being the descendants of giants but now they are the descendants of giants um and kind of like what dragonborn do where they have a draconic ancestor the goliaths now have a giant ancestor which give them uh certain certain abilities like a cloud giant as a bonus action you can magically teleport up to 30 feet into an unoccupied space and that's very reminiscent of the the face step ability from uh was it it was a ladron mm-hmm. yeah kind of a kind of a celestial elf uh in the fact that it it was from the feywild which is another plane of existence um yeah and then fire giants get a get a a, a bonus damage based on the based on the fire damage type and then Frost giants get like frost jam, uh, frost damage, and they slow their opponent when they apply the frost damage. and slow the opponents. Uh, hill giants uh, they can knock uh, targets prone. Stone giants uh, are just really really tough from the looks of it, and because they can they can reduce damage a certain number of times a day, and then storm giants have thunder damage that they can do. But uh, kind of like what we were talking about earlier with things with abilities being tied to proficiency bonus, the use of these certain like ancestry type bonuses from the type of giant you're descended from are also tied into your proficiency bonus. So you get two at the 
for the first couple of levels and then it moves up to three and then i think at maximum it's like five once you you top out at level 20 yeah i i particularly appreciate that the stone giants damage reduction is a d12 because i don't think we give the d12 enough love Great Axe and Stone Giant Endurance. And, and, and Barbarian Hit Points. Barbarian Hit Points. That is if you even roll for Hit Points anymore. I don't know, Get off my lawn. Get off it, your lawn. It, it, it's an option. You can either take the average or you can roll for Hit Points. Oh, okay. You know, as, as I wax nostalgic about playing mages with a single Hit Point. Yeah. That wasn't as much fun as we people old people make, it, make sound. it sound like. No, but that's the way you did it. Uphill both ways. In the snow. In the snow. All right, so the second document, we were kind of jumping back and forth between the first and the third document uh, talking about things, but the the second document features three uh, classes. These are the expert class group, uh, the bard, the ranger, and the rogue. Right. Now, grouping classes is something they're doing in one D&D, and it's definitely not new. Um, we saw classes and what they used to call subclasses, but it's not what we call them anymore. Um, still called we, subclasses? No, no, no. There are still subclasses, but they're not what we used to say a subclass was. For example, oh, okay. as of our Unearthed Arcada in 1985, Cavalier was a core class and Paladin was a subclass of Cavalier. Ah. So Fighter was a core class, Ranger was a subclass of Fighter, etc. Um, so there have been groups of classes as far back as Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, but now they're reshuffling the groups. Yeah. And I, I honestly, I seem to remember cause I was part of the 5e play test that uh, you were too. We, we play tested it together, but I seem to remember them using this nomenclature back then with the expert class, the fire, the, the, the expert group, the fighter group like th- this doesn't, for some reason, this doesn't seem new to me. Well, I I I want to say they were using the term rogue back in the day, but you're you're right. Um, it may have been expert because it, as of third edition, the thief ceased being really what it had been up until that point and became the skill monkey. Yeah. Um. All of a sudden, the classes that were thief related back in the old days have kind of become the more skillful um, skill based classes that really rely on those learned knowledges and abilities rather than the other elements of the D&D game Um, and and also somewhere in that point the the rogue, the thief became a, a I hate to use the term, but a lot of a lot of the people I talk to have referred to them as a DPS class, damage per second, using using video game terminology, because it's it's become about landing that sneak attack damage. Yeah. Well, I yes. mean, when when you tie that ability and you make it special, I mean, that's that's kind of what it becomes. Mm-hmm. You know, they're they're sneaky. They can get into places they're not supposed to, and they deal a lot of damage if they can get sneaky and get into place. Um, and that is, that is true, but you know, from, from an older, older school perspective, the thief was able to get that amazing backstab damage every now and then, 
but it was much more difficult to pull off. Yeah. And you did not see thieves tending to fight up close and personal as much as they do in more modern versions of D&D. Uh, largely because it was so hard under most dungeon masters yeah. to set up those backstabs. Um, I remember the DM that I grew up playing with would require you to be successful at both a move silent and a hide in shadows, which at the levels we tended to play at were like maybe 30% if you were really good. Yeah. Um, so, but nowadays you just have to, you know, use various synergistic abilities with the rest of your, your, uh, party and all it might require is that one of your allies is standing adjacent to a target. Yeah. Now you have advantage. Now you can land your sneak attack damage. Yeah. And boy, did I see people abuse that in fourth edition. Yeah. I, w- I was a part of that play, that play group. Yes. We absolutely abused it. So, um, yeah, they've broken it down. This whole document is about the expert classes. And one of the things I noticed as I was looking through here, uh, and this kind of jumps down to uh, later on in the document, but uh, and I didn't honestly, I honestly did not know it when I read through the the first document. But all of the feats in here that are listed are listed as fourth level feats, and so that caused me to go back and take a look at the first document, and I see that they were listed as first level feats, ones in the first document. That kind of goes back. So they 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 did away with uh, level requirements in fifth edition. Yes, they did. And this is uh, from previous editions because they 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 had the level based feat uh, choices in fourth edition and third edition and third. Oh yeah, third edition. You could go entire entire trees. Oh, although to be to be fair, in third edition there was a whole lot of prerequisite feats and. Yeah. My personal, the the thing I hated was the the feats that required a certain skill total or base attack bonus total because it didn't take into account anything else like, say, ability score modifiers. So why would, if this feat requires you to be this good with a weapon, then why does it not matter what my strength bonus is on top of my BAB? Should I not be able to get this a little sooner because I'm good with the sword already? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it also screwed with multi-classing if you wanted to be a fighter type, but your BAB went really slow, and yeah, that, that was... I'm glad they did away with it, Yeah, but I'm not upset they brought it back in one D&D because they've simplified it. Yeah, so yeah, fifth edition really simplified feats. The feats were a lot more powerful than in previous editions, but uh, they, they were just they were really, really kind of uh, bog simple in their in their construction. But they were also optional. Yeah, they they were also optional. Now I haven't I haven't seen anything in here that say that these feats are optional. They are not uh, as of the first document. Yeah. Feats are now hard-coded into one D&D. Everybody will get a feat at first level, and we'll talk about where that comes in. Yeah. But, uh, yes, feats are going to once again be a integral part of the system. They are no longer a switch your DM can flip on and off. Or in the case of Scott, when we played with him, yeah. flip halfway 
where if you've got a really good reason for it, you can yeah. take a feat. Otherwise, no feats. No capes. Just a five. But in these first, uh, so going through and looking at these feats, and they've, they've provided a very handy uh, kind of breakdown of how the, the feats are constructed. They call it the parts of the feat. So you can see where they've got the, the level requirements, and then you've got uh, whether or not the feat has any kind of prerequisite. And I don't see any of the first edition feats that they've released that have any uh, kind of prerequisite. You mean, you mean first level feats? Or first level feats that require any kind of pre prerequisite. But then they've got something in there that says repeatable, which I find kind of interesting. It's whether or not you can buy it multiple times. Yes. And before um, it was never specifically called out, it's... Uh, but if but now if it is repeatable, they've got it in there and it's it's codified in there as a, a category and it's kind of cool. Um, but then going through and taking a look at the fourth uh, the fourth level feats that were introduced in the second playtest document, now we've got uh, certain attribute uh, prerequisites. Um, here we are with a proficiency uh, prerequisite on for any, I'm looking at dual wielder right now, proficiency with any martial weapon. Um, charger, same thing. Now, something that's interesting is you'll get a preview of this feat system in the new Dragonlance book that drops in a few days. Yeah. Because it also hands out a first level feat to PCs and then another feat at fourth level. Yeah. that is designed to basically lock certain characters into roles in the Dragonlance universe. For instance, if your character is a Knight of Salamnia, you pick up your knightly order at 4th level after having a Squire feat at 1st level. Or with the Wizards of High Sorcery, which are now the Mages of High Sorcery because they include the other classes that have been introduced since 1st edition, yeah. um, you basically set up which moon your character is linked to because magic in Kryn is linked to the moons. Yeah. And then you pick up the later feat, which places you solidly in one of the orders, the red robes, the white robes, the black robes. So um, they're already kind of testing the waters for this in a published book. And I think it, it looks pretty good. Yeah, so getting back to feats really quick, uh, one of the things that I absolutely wanted to, to point out is in in fifth edition, you it was kind of an either or type thing. You could get an ability score improvement, or you could get a feat. But they they had it spread out. It was what every fourth four levels, every four levels. So the feats here, and they started this in fifth edition. The feats here give a partial ability score bump, yes. and then it gives you some kind of mechanical ability tied to the feat. So like with athlete here, you get a climb speed. Um, you can jump up uh, when you're prone and it gives you an a, advantage on jump check. So if you are an athlete, you are more athletic. One of the things I'm really interested in here is in as a fourth level feat, they've got ability score improvement. Yes. So in effect, you can choose to do what you could do in 2014 fifth edition. Yeah. Which is, I don't want a feat, I want an ability score bonus. And 
basically with this, you increase one ability score of your choice by two or increase two by one. And you can't increase an ability score above 20, which that was a fifth edition limitation as well. And so instead of having it baked into each of the classes where it's either ability score improvement or feet, if that option was flipped on now, because feats are always flipped on, you can just choose that ability score improvement as a feat. And I've, ability score improvements all go all the way back to third edition. Yeah. You, yeah. you picked up ability scores every fourth level there too, but picking up feats was a little more complex because if you were playing, say, a warrior class, you got a shitload of bonus. That was uh, managing feats. But then again, remember, like I said, you had whole hierarchies of feats for particular builds. And if you needed to make sure you had the right BAB, the right uh, ability score bonus. Then there were the infamous feats that were more or less useless. Yeah, but, but were required for other ones. Right. Which which wizards has tried really hard to get rid of. Yeah, no, no. There's a lot more a uh, lot more purpose in this design, which I really appreciate. Well, and we're also looking at more than twenty years of experience with the concept of feats that go all the way back to late second edition. Another thing to talk about. Well, you want to? You want to? You want to talk about clerics? Well, I mean, we ha we haven't really finished going through rogues the rogues yet. yet. Well, that's just it. Is I mean, there's. There's a couple of changes I think are worth. Okay. Okay. What um, what changes would you like to talk? So, about? being someone who really enjoyed playing a bard. Okay. Um, I would like to talk about the change they made to bardic inspiration because that is a pretty core ability of the bard in fifth edition, and and probably the bardic ability most often used because the bard becomes that character that can hand potential bonuses to just about anything to the other members of the party okay so bardic inspiration was an active thing in core fifth edition i am going to give you a bardic inspiration die which you can then spend later yeah in one DD, bardic inspiration becomes a reaction when the bard sees another party member fail at something the bard can then toss out the bardic inspiration to boost the role that was just failed and possibly push it over the edge to succeed. Yeah. So it becomes, uh, it, it doesn't become something I actively hand you. It becomes an, Oh shit. I just saw you fail at something. Let me see if I can inspire you. Yeah. There's also, uh, another use of bardic inspiration, which is a bardic heal where if I see you take damage, one of my allies is hurt, I can use that Bardic Inspiration to restore hit points. So I seem to remember in 5th edition, and I'm not 100% sure if this was a subclass of the Bard. It might have been a Martial Bard, where they could use a Bardic Inspiration die to kind of give you a, a D4 or a D6 and like damage reduction. Oh, oh boy. Um I I actually don't remember, but this is but this is healing. Well, see it's 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 explicitly called a heal. Yeah. But I think as a as a DM, I would probably call it out more as one of those lucky moments when the bullet hits your cigarette case and you're not actually hurt. Um I because I you know Bards have had access to healing for a while. Yeah. 
But I I think it would be kind of cooler if you skinned it as as an inspirational ability as yeah. as a you know you you prevent the damage from taking place in the first place yeah. or you prevent it from being as serious as it would otherwise be yeah. but it is it is called a heal um and bardic inspiration once again is linked to your proficiency bonus comes back at a long rest i have noticed that um the concept of a short rest is seems to be almost entirely deprecated in these documents um it i i really i see long rest long rest long rest so we're getting back to daily abilities yeah in 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 effect we are uh well i mean i i saw the whole short rest thing abused in my 5e campaigns um you know let, let let's take our 5 minutes and or 10 minutes or 30 minutes i think they they eventually uh said it was but like here we are in the middle of you know, oh, I've blown through all my abilities. We got to sit down and rest now. That's not real. You know, realistically, that's not quite how it works. And and ironically, that's ironically that's one of the things that they were trying to avoid by creating the concept of encounter powers in Fourth yeah. Edition. Uh, they used to call it the five minute workday because in old school D anD D, you had all these abilities that were per day, yeah. and so what they wanted to avoid is. We do the first three rooms in the dungeon and we go back to the keep on the borderlands and recharge. And then we come back and do the next three and then we go back and recharge. Yeah. And so they, they wanted to create a, a more robust adventuring day. So you weren't constantly falling back and resting. And it seems like it just sort of exacerbated the problem. Well, I just think they just ended up reskinning the problem. <laughs> they, yeah. they, they just, they changed the name to something else and it, it just, kind of moved it around yeah um but yeah the whole the whole short rest prop geez yeah that was all right now we're gonna rest for 30 minutes i gotta i used i used a key point now i will i will say that as a as a staunch old school player yeah one of the things that i can honestly say sucked was being that low level mage yeah, I have one spell, and after I cast it, I'm hiding behind the fighter, carrying I mean, the torch. You know that that did suck, and so the the ability to recover a few spells on a short rest after a couple of levels in fifth edition was nice. Yeah, but also you weren't stuck with a single spell; you had cantrips. You 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 always were able to do something, and that kind of goes back to this was in second edition was the uh the weapon was it the uh, proficiencies there and uh because you can get like crossbow proficiency and whatnot and i reskinned crossbow proficiency into kind of a wand based whereas magic missile was an auto hit it was you you rolled on your uh your the, the wizard rolled on their intelligence and uh, it became kind of a very, very, very low level wand, but it still had the same D6 damage of the of the crossbow. And it was to to make the wizard have give them a kind of a thematic, right. uh, you know, in, in theme with the the magic user uh, uh, kind of trope. And, 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 and it's funny because I did something very similar in parallel. Oh, yeah. Uh, I back when we played basic D and D, 
I've toyed around with letting wizards have like a, a what we would now call an at will, yeah. you know, uh, attack for like a d4 plus their intelligence bonus, but they had to roll to hit, and most wizards sucked at hitting anything because their attack bonus, their thaco, whatever yeah. you want to call it, yeah. only only improved about every five levels. And so it was really useful at low level where everybody had the same shitty hit rolls. Yeah. But as, as levels went up, it became less and less relevant. But the important part was that first level wizard could still do something. Yeah. Um, and that was heavily inspired by the old Dungeons & Dragons cartoon where it seemed like uh, when you saw a powerful spellcasting character like Venger or Kellek they could just summon these balls of magic and toss them all day. They didn't, exactly. they didn't seem to have any real limit, but they also didn't seem to be super effective. Yeah. So I thought, okay, I'll let my wizard do this because it's not world-shattering. It's like throwing a dagger. Yeah. Um, so. Well, yeah, and th that's exactly it is. Uh, yeah, the, the wizard could go and cast sleep, and he, you know, he does sleep, and then he's back there, but... I mean, you, you really, even back then, you know, you want people to feel useful. You want them to feel like they're they're here for more than just casting their one spell. And then, uh, well, now the fighter's going up. Right, right. Well, and, you know, some, some grognard will eventually say, well, it sucked to be a wizard at first level, but you make it to fifth. When you can toss that fireball, and that's what it's wow. all Linear about. Linear fighter, quadratic wizard. And while I agree that there was a huge payoff to playing a spellcaster, yep. if you're sitting somebody down to play their very first game of D&D, &D, and they spend four hours carrying a torch around because they've only got one spell and it's read magic, you're doing a disservice to the hobby. That player is not coming back. Yeah, you're never you're never going to get your you're never going to get your really badass uh, wizard because he's quit because he's got tired of carrying the porch <laughs> um so the uh that that was one of the things about the the reconstructed bard class that i thought was very interesting was that bardic inspiration now becomes um a a safety net for certain yeah rather okay. than a front-loaded event um and you could argue that different ways i want to see how it plays because i think it's kind of neat if the if the bard is able to salve those those uh, crap moments, yeah, um, yeah, because I was going through and I was looking through uh, the rogue and the ranger, which were the other two classes as part of the expert group. I don't see very many, uh, nothing that really just kind of stands out as like a big change. Well, one of the things that strike me is that uh, the way they've organized the classes, because traditionally, Ranger and sometimes Paladin yeah. fell under Fighter. Yeah. Um, and now Paladin falls with the Priest group and Ranger falls with the Expert group. And I think both of those are showing how those classes are played today yeah. as opposed to how they were played before. Before. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think it's, I think it's a, an interesting change because we, we do seem tend to see the ranger becoming more of a, uh, spe all around 
yeah. uh, useful character than being hyper-specialized like they used to be. And I think sometimes the descriptions of rangers in the rule books were... I'm not going to say contradictory, but like, for the longest time, the ranger was proficient in heavy armor. But yeah. when you think of a ranger, do you think of a ranger in plate mail? I mean... Not the traditional. I mean, the 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 ranger class kind of got their the the visuals from Aragorn, and I mean, at least in the Peter Jackson uh, interpretation, like the visual interpretation of him, he wasn't running around and not till the not till the the end of the third movie when everything was yeah you know set piece battle and they yeah. were at the gates of Mordor. Now he's in yeah he was he was in his traveling clothes with very little in the way of armor. Or, you know, a lot of people have, have uh, in fact, the second edition player's handbook said, you know, here's a good example, Robin Hood, it's a ranger. Yeah. You know, most depictions of Robin Hood have him in, at best, studded leather armor. Um, this version, of course, and and uh, recent versions have removed that heavy armor yeah. from, from the basic abilities. Um, but... Uh, you know, Rangers have gone back and forth since 3rd edition with uh, dual weapon fighting and bow proficiency and, and all of that sort of thing. And I mean, looking at the, the Ranger here, uh, you could still end up choosing, I want to say, dual weapon fighting because uh, you get a fighting style, which now is a feat, by the way, as opposed to a, a prepared list inside of the... It's a it's a fighting it's a fighting style that's tied to uh, one of the martial classes, but this is an expert class, which I find kind of interesting. Um, but yeah, you can get archery, defense, or two weapon fighting that way. And you know, to me, that's very interesting because two weapon fighting has also become sort of a, a hallmark of the rogue class, as well as the as the ranger. The, the ranger. And you get that from you get the ranger stuff from Dritzt. Right, right. Like I don't I don't think we were in our heads seeing the dual weapon fighting thing as a ranger um hallmark until that character became super super popular. Super popular. Um so I think uh Rangers getting expertise at first level is very is a very interesting choice because that that has been a Rogue. but now it's a ranger thing which accompanies the ranger moving into the expert heading yeah they they it, it's actually not specifically tied to you gain expertise in two skills of your choice and then underneath it it says stealth and survival are iconic choices for a ranger if you have proficiency in them but it's not a requirement Right. So you could do a lot yeah. with, with this version of the Ranger. Yeah. And honestly, that, that'll, that'll ultimately be tied into the, uh, not only the species you choose, but also the background you choose for them. So you can have, you could create an urban Ranger. Right. And the favored enemy has become much less, you know, choose one kind of bad guy and that's your, that's your so, nemesis. Yeah, they, they yeah. now tie it into the Hunter's Mark spell. And uh, you get bonuses on the Hunter's... I want to say you get bonuses on the Hunter's Mark spell for your favorite enemy. I was just looking at it and... 
Yeah, that's very different from the old Rangers where yeah. you were locked into giant class humanoids. Yeah. Um, which paradoxically included goblins and stuff. Yeah. Wait a minute, those are giant class? Welcome to old D&D. Then let's take a look at... Let's take a look at Rogue one more time. So yeah, sneak attack, it's what you were talking about earlier. It's advantage. If you have advantage, you can do, you get sneak attack damage. And if you have an ally adjacent. Ally adjacent. So that means sneak attack is going to happen a lot more often. Yeah. Well, a lot more often by default. There were ways to make that work previous to this back you know back to third edition if you had the right feats and uh, it was it was an infamous build at my uh D, D encounters tables during the fourth edition era oh yeah yeah because there were there were two feats that everybody that played the thief subclass that came out in D, D essentials picked up they always picked up one feat that turned your sneak attack dice into d8s um at first level and then another feat that allowed you to consider yourself, consider the enemy flanked if someone was adjacent to it. And because of ambiguous, well, it may not have been ambiguous writing in the rules. It may have been intended to be this way. Yeah. You could use your sneak attack damage once per turn, but not your turn, any turn. So what ended up happening was I had parties showing up to my tables at the game store with four warlords and a thief. And what would happen is they were all the lazy warlord build with commander strike. Yeah. So one of them would move into contact with an enemy. The the thief would move in, thief being a subclass of rogue in essentials. Yeah. That got bonuses to backstab, backstab stacked on top of sneak attack. Yeah, they've got the thief as the is the subclass. And so so uh, what they would do is they would move one one character in to establish base-to-base -base contact and, and activate the sneak attack for the thief. Mm -hmm. The thief would make their attack, and then the other warlords on their turn would just say, Commander Strike, Thief, hit it. Yeah. Because it was the warlord's turn, yeah. the thief could now lay down the sneak attack damage. And then the next warlord got a turn. Well, now it's a different turn. Yeah. So the thief, when he hits, will be able to lay down the sneak attack damage. And so they would just go round and round. Thief, hit it. Thief, hit it again. Thief, hit and it again. You know what they don't have anymore? The yeah. warlord club. Well, there's there's still the there's still the well, they, they've got stuff in there with the fighter and then because they haven't released fighter with the, yeah. the one D, &D there is, stuff. There is still the fighter subclass that has the warlord like ability. Yeah, but it's not nearly as prevalent. Yeah. It's uh it's it's very, very limited into uh your martial die. Yeah. Now I will say yeah. I miss the warlord class, but not when it's being abused like that. I thought it was a neat idea. I thought it was an archetype that was useful in D D. Um, having having that battlefield commander kind of character, that whole Hannibal, uh, I love it when a plan comes together, yeah, yeah. you know, sort of character. Um, so, but yeah, um, you know the 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 thief rework is interesting. Yeah. Um, 
sneak attack, I think, is going to... It, it is time I, I I put aside my my old, you know, Grognard thing and stop railing against the thief becoming the damage dealer. Because it's like, we've settled into a Dungeons & Dragons over the last 20 years yeah. where the fighter is no longer the primary damage dealer in, in average melee. The fighter's job is to, quote-unquote, tank. Yeah, it's crowd control, it's... Um... So the fighter absorbs the damage while yeah. the thief lands the damage. And while you could argue that D&D's always been that way, not really. Uh, you know, back when I first started playing, thieves had a D4 hit die. They did not they did not jump into melee unless they really had to or unless they were hidden ahead of time and could make that backstab from the shadows and then get the hell out. Um, you were limited to leather armor, and even with your dex bonus, that was still not going to save you from a really pissed off monster. Um, nowadays, rogues are much more survivable. They have D8 hit die these days. Like, even wizards don't have a D4 anymore. Yeah. Um, yeah D wizards moved up to D6 in 4th uh, edition, I think. 4th or 5th? No, well, in, but in 4th edition, you started with HP equal to your con... Plus your hit die. Yeah. So, um, I believe even in third edition they were d6. I'd, I'd have to go back and. Yeah, I, actually, I don't remember. Now. I want to say rogues have been d8 for a while now, but I'd I'd have to go back and look. I, actually, I want to say that rogues were uh, d6 in third edition. Okay, because they were they were d4 back in old school d and d. They were d6 in a d and d. Yeah. Um. So yeah. But yeah, the 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 sneaky classes. I am I am in a group that is playtesting the sneaky classes right now, and so far we haven't seen enough of how a lot of this works. We haven't leveled up that much yet. Yeah. So I mean, we'll see. There's nothing that jumps out at me as egregious. Yeah, there, I don't see, like I said, going through here, I don't see any major changes. I was never really a rogue player, though. Yeah, um, the biggest change for me is, is again, the bards becoming more reactive than proactive, but I think that might be a good thing. I think it might be a fun way to play. Yeah. So you said you wanted to jump cleric. over to Well, cleric. yeah, I wanted to take a look at Cleric because we had a pretty big conversation before before the podcast started. Because my class for 30-some-odd years has been Cleric. Um, and uh, Larry Elmore, I, I blame Larry Elmore for that because yeah. while I was waiting to create my first character, um, my first GM's brother was he had he had the red players book while he was making his character so i was flipping through the uh menser expert set and i came across this beautiful piece of art it was a, a black and white sketch by larry elmore of a cleric casting speak with dead and it has this spectral visage of this dead guy rising from his body while the cleric's got his hands up over his head and it was just such a cool piece of art and i was like that's what i want absolutely that, that guy that guy is awesome yeah and uh i've played clerics ever since all right because you are our clerical expert 
Tell me about your thoughts on the cleric class. Take heed, take heed, because I'm a clerical poet. Uh, anyway, Mistar um, is my scene, in case you didn't know it. So the changes to the cleric class. They have flip-flopped around at what level you gain various abilities. And that's something that you'll also see over, you know, in the expert builds that we that we uh, looked at. And that is because, as I understand it from the interviews, they are attempting to standardize yeah. when you get your abilities at third level. Yeah. Now, you know, getting getting me off into the deep weeds with, well, back in my day. Um, All right, um, Grandpa. In the old days when you had levels uh, that had titles, yeah. it was implied by the titles that you reached a professional level in your class at third level. For instance, um, fighters were called swordmaster at third level, but priests very specifically, or clerics very specifically, were called priest. Yeah. First level was acolyte, third level was priest. And so we took that to mean a couple of things. One is that almost every village priest would be third level, but also that you were considered a frocked priest at third level, and before that, you were still training up. Yeah. And so, um, one of the things that they are doing is they're making third level the level at which you acquire the full set of your class abilities and your subclass, as opposed to bog standard fifth edition where say you picked your cleric domain at first level wizards chose a specialty at second but then everybody else gets their subclass at third. if i remember right uh the cleric at first edition you know you picked your you picked your uh your kind of domain you didn't get anything from it well i mean in first edition there really wasn't a concept of domain in Dragonlance, the actual Dragonlance Adventures hardcover, yeah. that was the first time in AD&D that I remember uh, seeing rules that gave you specific abilities to your deity. Now, remember, I came into D&D in 86, so that book was really the first one I looked at that happened to have that rule in it. There may have been things for Greyhawk or, yeah. or um, things like that. Um, when the revised version Wrath of the Immortals came out for basic D&D, which was in the early 90s, that had rules for specific deity abilities per cleric. But by that time, second edition AD&D was out, and now you could have um, spe what we would call a specialty cleric. Yeah. Up until the point before then, clerics were clerics. And, and in basic D&D &D and in AD&D, &D, they all had the same restrictions. You know, blunt weapons and... and um, interesting. You could always wear heavy armor as a cleric, which is something that they backed away from. Yeah. Um, certain subclasses of cleric can get it, and anyone can now pick it up as a feat. Um, but uh, clerics don't automatically get access to plate mail like they used to. But uh, this... Uh, you know, picking your domain, which happened in in third edition and and afterwards, uh, as a default. You know, we won't get into the kits in the 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 priest book. And yeah, um, Aaron Alston wrote that book. Yeah. Um. So anyway, um, 
so they flip-flopped it so that you pick up your domain at third, uh, your subclass at third subclass. now. So at first level, what do you get? You get channel divinity and you get spell casting. Yeah. Um, what does channel divinity give us now? So channel divinity now gives you two options. Yeah. Uh, one is turn undead, which, you know, coming from the old school background, I kind of like fifth edition's turn undead and, and the version of turn undead here, which is very similar. Very similar. They just really just look like they codified some things. Yes. Um, one thing that that's interesting to me about it is it's all undead within 30 feet, regardless of how powerful they are, make a saving throw. Obviously, the more powerful ones are more likely to make the saving throw. But in in older versions of D&D back in the day, um, pre-4th edition, um, Turn Undead was heavily influenced by the hit dice of the undead you were attempting yeah, to Yeah, you could turn a certain number of hit die equal to your cleric level. Right. And the, ability score bonus. You know, you know and, and even further back in like BX, which I've been running recently in the form of old school essentials, yeah. uh, you rolled 2d6 and that's how many hit dice of undead you just turned. Um, so the ability to get lucky and turn, say, a vampire at first level because it blew its save is awesome. The other channel divinity ability is, is a heal or harm. You can, you can use one of your uses of channel uh, divinity, which, by the way, is equal to your proficiency bonus per between long rests yeah. per day, yeah. um, to uh, heal a die of, of damage or inflict a die of wounds, which is, which is kind of neat. Um, that is independent of actual cure spells. Yeah, that cuz yeah, that's tied once again to the the channel divinity power. But yeah, that's that's uh that's pretty cool divine spark is what they're calling it. Uh it does radiant damage if you choose to do damage. Yeah. Um uh, which is cool if you're fighting undead that have a vulnerability to radiant damage. And so I'm going through and I'm looking, I'm looking at this. So you second level, you choose your holy order. Right. And that's, that's kind of a new thing. Yeah. So that allows you to kind of tailor the specific kind of cleric you want to play. Yeah. Like uh, you can take protector and pick up heavy armor proficiency. If you want to be the old school ass beater, Here's my shield and mace. Yeah, well, actually, yeah. you get a martial weapon proficiency as well. Right, and it, again, it can be any weapon, but, you know, the old school cleric is, yeah. is a hammer or a mace yeah. and a shield, and you'll wade in and beat the shit out of things and heal your, heal your allies. You can become a scholar priest, and you pick up some additional proficiencies like arcana or history or nature. Uh, or religion, in case you don't have it by second level as a... Yeah, if you, if you, for some reason, you don't have religion. Um, or you could choose Thaumaturge, which gives you um, an extra cantrip, zero-level spell. Yeah. Um, and you... Uh, one more, in addition, you gain one additional uh, use of Channel Divinity whenever you... Finish a short rest. Yeah, or, or you regain one, one expended use. Yeah. One of the few references so far right. to short yeah. rest. I noticed that, yeah, going through there. 
Um, who knows? We may see more of it when the more heavily casting-oriented classes come out. Yeah. Um, or when the martial classes come out. But so far, we haven't seen a lot that is linked to a short rest. Yeah. So, um, pick up Thaumaturge uh, if you want additional spell casting. And then at third level, you pick up your subclass, which is your clerical domain. Um, and so the, the domain that they've given us to play test uh, is the uh, life domain cleric. And they said in the interview, it's because that is the single most popular domain that they have seen. Uh, people tend to be really into the life domain cleric. And, you know, if you're a party member who is not the cleric, you're probably really interested in having a life domain cleric around. Yeah. Because, you know, a lot of people complain, I don't want to be the heal bot. I don't want to be the... the yeah. But healing is important. Healing is important. We, we used to say don't leave home without it when talking about the cleric in a party. Um, of course, being able to spend hit dice during a rest period to heal yourself without a cleric is very useful. Yeah. I'm glad D&D &D caught up with 1993 Earth Dawn. Yeah. But yes, um, having a healing cleric is definitely useful. So, so they have respawn the cleric where you pick up you pick up your subclass. Um, now, an interesting point on subclasses. Apparently the player's handbook is being designed to have 48 subclasses. Four subclasses for each of 12 classes okay so that means we've got more domains now than the eventual player's handbook will have yeah uh just like we have more wizards more wiz yeah yeah that's really curbing down wizard schools right so it's going to be interesting to see what happens when they they firm up what's going to be in the player's well, handbook. i i'm predicting that they're going to do some kind of weird like multi-class or multi subclass thing where you can choose one or the other. And right. they're going to like basically kind of like how, how the, the expert class is now a group. They're going to group up a subclass so that it's one or the other. That's kind of how it was in AD and D second edition is yeah. you could choose to be a specialty mage, which was its own thing. But once you chose that, you picked your school of magic. Yeah. So now they may make specialty mage one of four subclasses. And maybe there will be a wild mage. Yeah. Now, of course, they could stick that to uh, sorcerer. like Yeah, as and, well. and I bet that's probably what they're going to do as well. I mean, we'll see. Yeah. So um, that's what they've, they've kind of done with cleric at the first three levels. Um, and an important point about the three-level thing is it's not just for standardizing everybody at level three. There's an ulterior motive that, okay, they, that? that they spoke about in the interviews. They are trying to prevent the one-level class dips that people have been using to kind of create um, rule-bending character ah uh, so limiting multi-class right so if you're going to multi-class into another class so that you can do everything that class can do at first level they're changing the class progression so that now you don't really reach 
a level of proficiency in the class till third level. So you're going to have to dip three levels if you want everything. Yeah. Um, because they've noticed some some multi-class builds that are exploitative. Yeah. And, and that's um, because nothing, it wasn't really, well, it's more standardized in fifth edition than it was in previous editions. But even in fifth edition, you could tweak things. And yeah, I, I noticed that in my own games. Yeah, they've noticed the, the, and um, yeah, the other day I read about somebody's, somebody's build where, um, uh, now I can't remember what the specific build was, but basically they combined being able to wear heavy armor and being able to cast the blur spell with creating a basically unhittable oh jeez uh, because they were being swung at with disadvantage because of the blur spell yeah. but their armor class was like 22 because so of the armor. because of the heavy armor plus some some bonuses or like a shield or something and um yeah it was crazy and you know there's the letter of the game yeah and then there's the spirit of the game. You know, I have personally played in more than one Dungeons & Dragons game where a player who is very, very proficient at finding those kinds of synergies in the rules ruins the fun for everyone else. Yep. Because their, their character then becomes invincible or then takes the center stage and no one else feels like they can accomplish anything. Or And, you know, Dungeons & Dragons is a group endeavor we're all there to have yep. fun i've we, we've both had players who love to try to find those synergies and they'll do very very purpose-built builds based on that and then essentially take over the game yeah and once again it, i mean i personally run very very story-driven games where you can go ahead and do that but it kind of becomes sucks to you. <laughs> right. And, you know, I, I find that, uh, I have to establish to my players when we start a campaign, what we're trying to accomplish, because if I'm running a modern game, it's going to be very story driven. Yeah. If for instance, I have a group that either wants to play old school D and D because that's what they grew up with. Or like this recent group I've been playing with, they're a bunch of current high school students who are like, show us the way it used to be. Yeah. In that case, I'm going to pull out all the stops and I'm going to run, you know, a D&D game with all the lethality that we used to have to deal with back in the day. And you're going to roll your stats and play what you roll. Now, I'm, again, 46, put them where you want them because that's always how we played. You know, people will wax nostalgic about 3D6 in order. Yeah. Yes, that's the way it was written, but I don't recall past my first or second game of D&D ever playing that way. Like yeah. we always and and some people took that to an egregious, well, 46, drop ones or two, re-roll ones and twos and then yeah. no. You know, that's a little little too much. But um you know, playing the simulationist game that Dungeons and Dragons was in the beginning. Yeah that's cool and that's that's absolutely you know a lot of fun but that's not what fifth edition is trying no not at all fifth edition is trying to be story driven and so as long as you understand what your players want out of your game there's no reason not to play any version of D D you want to play 
just bear in mind everybody going to be on the same yeah, page. That's what session zero is for. So that's pretty much, I mean, I know we didn't go into super depth on a lot of this stuff. It's just sort of an overview, but the cleric did just drop. Yeah, the cleric, the cleric dropped today as well as the, the blog post that they did when they were talking about moving away from the term race and moving like all of that came out today. And, and, you know, there's a lot of people that are complaining that the word species is too technical or too modern and that they should have said lineage or kin or something yeah. like that. I'm cool with species just to get away from the loaded word that race has become. Yeah. Uh, yeah, same. Doesn't. Ultimately, I, it doesn't change a whole lot because yeah. it's still a it's still a term used to define something else. Well. Thank you very much for listening to the Retro Arcana podcast. If you like this content and want to see more, put Retro Arcana in your GM's toolkit by hitting the subscribe button. You can also reach out to us at our website, www.retroarcana.com, or hit us up on Twitter at Retro Arcana. I'm Bobby. And I'm Jeff. We'll talk to you later.